New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Is a world of spirituality separate and more valuable than ordinary, everyday living? Does a fully awakened person mean they are not affected by their emotions? The French philosopher Descartes was certain that we could alleviate chaos and provide certainty through rational means. His reigning philosophy was one of separating the mystery of spirit from the life of the body, reason ruled and sensing, feeling, intuition and emotions took a back seat to logic and conceptual thinking. And that philosophy continues to rule this day, although quantum physics and other scientific research are pointing to a reality beyond the perceptions of our strictly rational brain. Today we'll be exploring the embodied spiritual path and what it means to live more consciously in a human body with our guest, Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler. Richard Strozzi Heckler is a doctor of psychology and a Sheehan seven degree black belt in Aikido. He's a renowned speaker, coach, and consultant on embodied leadership and mastery and has spent more than five decades researching, developing, and teaching somatics to business leaders, executive managers, and teams of Fortune 500 companies, NGOs, technology startups, nonprofits, and the U.S. government and military. He's the founder of the Strozzi Institute, where he teaches courses on somatic coaching and leadership in action. He's the author of many books, including In Search of the Warrior Spirit and Embodying the Mystery, Somatic Wisdom for Emotional, Energetic, and Spiritual Awakening. Join us for the next hour as we explore the quest for a fully embodied presence through the practice of meditation, Aikido, and somatics with our guest, Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler. I'm speaking with Richard from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Richard, welcome to New Dimensions. 
It's a pleasure to be here with you, Justine. Finally, we're doing this. Finally, yes. You've been on our list for a long, long time. I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I'm relieved, though, because this newest book, it just encompasses so much of all of your experience and work. And the subtitle in the book is Somatic Wisdom. So let's just first talk about what is somatic methodology? It's beyond psychotherapy, right? Yes. Uh, Let me start with the the understanding that soma is a early Greek word that means the living body in the wholeness, in its wholeness. And really that view was that inside of this form, this shape that we call body, um, is uh, our thinking, our emotional life, our moods, the imagery that we uh, cultivate, our actions. And that's different than there's a one piece called body, one piece called mind, and one piece called spirit. In other words, here we are in this singular nervous system. And we're able to access these things by coming into the life of our body. And somatics means um, the art and science of the soma. I'm reminded of a quote you have in your book. You speak of a man from New Guinea who said, In my country, we have a proverb that says, Knowledge is only a rumor until it's in the muscle. And uh, so this just reminds me, knowledge and wisdom need to be embodied. We think of knowledge and wisdom and we think, oh, it's just this, our head, our brain, our intellect. The quote came when I was in Japan studying the martial arts. And at the end of the day, a group of Westerners would get together and talk about what they did. This young man from New Guinea was going to Oxford, so he joined us. And, you know, there was a lot of um, testosterone from these young men, myself included, and we could do this and do that and people going on with things. And he, in a very um, uh, beautiful and graceful way, interrupted us. He said, I'd like to share with you this, this saying we have in my country, this proverb, which is that knowledge is useful only when it's in the muscle. And what he was telling us, we can talk forever about something, but unless we show it in phenomena in the world, that's when it really gains its sense of um, of grace and power and wisdom. Yeah, beautifully said. You mentioned Japan. I know you've traveled the world and you've been mentored by many just beautiful, beautiful, wise teachers. And I would love for you to share some of those teachers, starting first with your grandmother, Baba, who really taught you the nature of spirit. So tell us about Grandma Baba. Yeah, I I have been really blessed with great teachers and very grateful for them taking me on. This grandmother, her name was Alba. She came from Sweden, and uh, I couldn't. I pronounced Bob Alba as Baba, so that name stuck. And when she came over and she joined the Swedish community that was developing in Montana, and um, what what she did was is she led seances, she read tea leaves, she read palms, 
And she had this ability, this, I think, what we would call a psychic ability, uh, you know, other than just relying on her rational thinking or mind, but when there's another life that's occurring that we can take access to. And, um, you know, she would have me sit on these seances in these dark rooms with a single candle burning around a round table with a number of Swedish immigrants, and she would call forth the spirits and ask yes or no questions. And if it was yes, the table would knock once. If it was no, it would knock twice. And um, the beauty of that was that it wasn't like something special is happening or it's sanctimonious or we have to be really reverent about it in, in an ingenuine way. It was just what we did. It was kind of like having a conference call with somebody that didn't have a body like mine. <laughs> <laughs> and then the immigrants would go out and drink their Swedish coffee and Svanskabola, Swedish bread, and just gossip. So it felt like um, while the rest of the America's maybe looking at the Ed Sullivan show. She was doing seances. Uh, and that was the introduction to this notion that there's a world that is invisible to the eyes and education that we have now. And I always just took that for granted and looked, looked for the possibility of continuing to tap into it and questioning what it is. Mm, mm. Which also reminds me of an early experience, and I would say this was a teacher as well, and this was you as a young boy coming across with some friends of yours of a, a dead dog, and you were so fascinated by it that you kept returning to it. Your friends didn't do that, but you kept returning, and this reminds me of a of a theme that for me, runs through your book is that letting go, letting go of something is always really a letting go into something. So you, life is, is forever changing into something else. So can, help us see that through the eyes of this young boy who's watching life unfold in this death of this dog. This very, very profound in insight, which I carry to this day, and it continues to grow inside of me, occurred when I was about seven years old. We're exploring this part of the, the this place that we lived in, and we said, let's go to this stream. And when we approached it, there was a dog lying in the shallows. Not an old dog, not a dog that was injured in any way that we could see as if nothing untoward had happened to it. And it was dead. And what immediately captured my attention was this notion that what's missing? It looks like a dog. Everything's in place, but there's something missing. I go back home. Um, I'm living with my mother and grandmother and great aunt at that time. Uh, my father's in the Navy. He's out at sea. And um, as I told them what happened, my mother immediately went into a germ story, <laughs> which was, did you touch it? Don't touch it. Promise me you won't go back. Don't do that. Be careful. I looked at my grandmother, and she just simply looked at me in that her beautiful, benevolent, but piercing gaze, and she said, its spirit was gone. And it invoked in me the question, well, what is spirit? 
Now, later on, she would, if we went out someplace, we'd go out by the Spokane River and she would wave her hands and see the trees blowing and the wind and the birds. And she goes, all of that is spirit. She was the one that told me there was once a conversation around heaven and hell. And she said, there's no heaven and hell. It's all inside you. I mean, if you think now, like here I am as like a nine-year-old or eight-year-old going, wow, that's inside me. So it just captured my attention. Anyway, I went back the next day and the next day and the next day alone. And what I began to see is this thing that we could say was a dog begin to capitulate into the stream. And all of a sudden there were spiders. There were little things like black apostrophes that were moving. There were maggots. And um, it, it, it entered me as though, wow, this thing is dying and going back to the land. And at the same time, it's being colonized by another form of life. And even the crows and ravens that were in the trees who would, after I left, they would come down and have their meal with it. And this notion of life being fastened to death, endings are beginnings. Mm -hmm. Beginnings are connected to endings. Like there's this ongoing circular thinking or ongoing process, dynamic and natural that's happening. Yes, profound for especially for a young boy. Um, I'm here with Richard Strozzi Heckler, and he is the author of Embodying the Mystery. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, strozziinstitute.com. And Strozzi is spelled S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I, strozziinstitute.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler, and we're talking about embodying somatic wisdom and emotional, energetic, and spiritual awakening, which is the subtitle of his book. And I'd like to talk about also, you mentioned that your father was in the Navy and he moved around a lot. And so going back again to these early childhood parts of your life that really informed a lot of your life later on or challenged your life later on. 
in the way that you grew up with him having to move all the time, you were very much bullied in some ways because you're always in, in her, entering a new school and you're the new guy and it, it just lends itself to uh, a kind of teasing and so forth and so on. And so you got in a lot of fights uh, and your mother took you to judo somebody i think a principal had said suggested well maybe judo would be a good thing for you so richard that was a, a moment of enlightenment for you to enter this judo class so describe that for us as a young boy entering that class yes this vice principal you know my mother had to come pick me up uh, because i gotten into another scrap you know, she thought I was a bully. You know, mostly I was in this new kid, as you said. And so I was afraid and I could take the taunts and the cat calls. Uh, but when it came to pushing, I would push back and then we would get in these scraps. So, you know, I, I was there and, um, she had to come pick me up and she asked the vice principal, what am I going to do with him? She said, put him in judo. Um, she was horrified. Like, oh, he'll learn how to fight more. He says, no, he'll learn discipline. So we go to this very, on the Navy base, this very large hangar that would used to store like planes. And, you know, there was volleyball, boxing, badminton, rest, all kinds of different activities in there. In the far corner, there's about a dozen men in these white uniforms with belts, dark belts, and taking one over the shoulder, throwing him down. That guy would get up with a big smile on his face and take the other guy and throw him down. And, you know, I was entranced. It, it was almost as if I was in the front row. I was a Catholic in the front row of the Vatican, right? Watching all of this magic, extraordinary thing happen. And that began my practice of, of judo. And um, it was done by these uh, sailors and Marines who had been overseas. Um, they were rough young men. You know, they'd teach me to fall by, they'd throw me down and, and go, no, no, don't do that. Or uh, throw me down again and go, that's a little bit better, but try to do this. But it was never really, it, it was a, a point I just had to kind of pay attention and make my body both round and soft without being slack but full of energy without being stiff. And um, every time we moved after that, I would go to one of the dojos around and learn either more judo, maybe jujitsu or karate. And it became like a home for me. And it also, you know, Justine, it really taught me um, at a young age that practice was fundamental. If I practiced, and had good teacher, I got better. Simple. So simple practice, practice. And and later on, we're talking about much later on, uh, you encountered Aikido. And I remember you writing about one of your, I think, an early Aikido teacher, Sensei Harata. He would train you in, in this kind of alert relaxation and he would constantly remind you get out of your head 
So let's talk about Aikido. What is Aikido and how is it different maybe from the other martial arts that you had been working with? Aikido um, translates being in harmony with a universal energy. And the founder of Aikido, Morihai Washiba, was a national living treasure of Japan. And, you know, he was a warrior. He fought in the Mongolian War. Um, he People would come to challenge him, and he would be able to defeat everybody. And they, they all of these people that came, all the way boxers from the United States, people from all around the world, and no one could defeat him, but stayed with him to learn from him. And the fundamental notion of it is that you neutralize the aggression, you don't neutralize the person. So how do we can use the other person's aggression as they're attacking us and redirect it so that you can begin to move everybody into a mutuality or an interconnectedness that begin to um, diffuse the aggression and the violence. Done right, it's a it's a fantastic martial art. I teach it now. My my teacher Satomi Sensei is still li- living, and um, you know it helps one be able to defend themselves. You can defend others that can't defend themselves, um, but really it begins to teach you how to in all aspects of your life to come in harmony with what is come in harmony with all the energy moving through you in the society and individual and in relationships it's it's also richard it's this is an art that is partnered i think that that's an important point that it's it's not done as an individual but it's done in coordination with another uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, there's there's a number of martial arts that have what we call katas. They have forms that they do. So those forms become embodied. But you're really doing them alone. You might practice with other people, but not in partnership. So in Aikido, you always have somebody who's the attacker. That's called the uke. Then you have somebody that resolves the attack. That's called the nage. And you get to play both of those roles. So you really learn how to attend to the other while you're also attending to your own centered presence and your breath and how the um, how you're presenting yourself to the other that doesn't trigger them into more fear or more aggression, but the possibility of partnership. You know, Morihai Washiba said that Aikido or Budo isn't for dividing people, it's for bringing them together. And it's actually an act of love. That's so even though it seems like oppositional, it's actually not at all. Correct. Correct. You play out your role as attacker very sincerely. You come in with a strong attack. You learn how to do that. But you're doing that in order that your partner can practice these basic principles of Aikido. So maybe when you're out in the world, no one's physically attacking you, but they may be emotionally attacking you or verbally attacking you. And the same principles pertain to that as well. 
I'd like to to talk about meditation. I know that you've been taught meditation. I I know that you went to India and and you worked with a a very famous teacher, Maharaj. Learn some meditation, and we mostly think of meditation as non-attachment. You have a different take on meditation and how some of us have learned it to bypass certain thoughts and feelings and all of that and just to kind of notice them, but just let them go. So let's talk about meditation, what it is and what it can be. Yes. Um, I really love the the Tibetans will talk about their word for meditation, which I don't know in Tibet, but what it is, what it means is to be familiar with. So it's being familiar with your mind, body, mind, body, spirit process. But when I met this man, uh, Maharaj Charan Singh, is that I was immediately compelled by his presence. In other words, I could feel that he was very quiet internally and very still internally. And outwardly, he was prepared for action. He fed people for free. He had free eye hospital. He made a large hospital for people for surgery. And um, he never charged anything for it. And this notion of having a deeply cultivated sense of wisdom, internal wisdom, and also using that to do good in the world had a uh, uh, lasting impact on me. So it wasn't that he retired to a cave someplace at that point in his life, but he was actually in the world making a contribution to make make um, to make it better. To put it simply, so it's it's an active participation in the world rather than a retreating from it or or wanting to go to some sort of heavenly realm or become enlightened so that we can bypass the body. All of your philosophy comes back to this embodied experience is, is what I get from from reading your work uh, that uh, and I I I love the idea. You you have this wonderful. I've never read uh, this analogy before, but you have this wonderful analogy of meditation. As I don't think you say a small boat, but I imagine being in a very small boat, rocking in a kind of ocean, you know. And I I just love that that image that you've given us. Um, in what meditation can be. So you do recommend meditation, right? I do. I do, you know. And um, when I first started introducing it to my organizational clients, or even in government and military, and if I'd use the med- word meditation, they, um, uh, I could see over their heads, so to speak, this person with this big beard and this, you know, like, and this white gown or maybe a halo around their head or something. And there was a lot of side-eyeing. Um, so what I began to say is that we're going to do attention training. 
And that was very digestible for people. And it's something that really can happen when you take on a meditation practice, that you cultivate your attention and you realize the importance of your attention. Like you can put it inside and scan your inner body, your organs. You can take it outside. You begin, you begin to understand that energy follows attention. So where we put our attention will become amplified and more alive which makes us come to the realization of the choice of where do I want to put my attention and how. I, I know you have a quote in your book. Um, you, you pose the question for us, am I directing my attention or is my attention leading me? I, I love that idea. I'm here with... Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler, and he's the author of Embodying the Mystery, Somatic Wisdom for Emotional, Energetic, and Spiritual Awakening. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler, and we're talking about our perennial search for wisdom and knowledge. And um, let's talk about certainty. Um, you know, uh, as humans, we are constantly searching for certainty. Um, we're, we, we'd like to spray fixative on life and, and just hold it in place like a framing a picture or something. And uh, so what can you say about this pursuit of certainty and the fallacy of trying to, to fix it in some way? Well, it's like you say, Justine, um, Nobody really gets up in the morning and, and after they comb their hair or shave or look in the mirror and get ready to go out into the marketplace, nobody really goes, what a great day to be uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, you know, this time that we're facing now, and this has occurred many times throughout history, but it really feels like there's a really a pervasive existential um, uncertainty around and it causes, if people aren't able to settle into that and actually realize it as a principal truth that actually there's so little that we can be certain about. And we see how people might be taken from their bodies dying just like that. And that um, this notion of trying to find certainty can also reify us like, I'm going to get inside of this channel and not move out of it and not stir anything up, but just keep going along those lines, is that it really it really covers up our capacity for creativity, innovation, and as you say, wisdom, wisdom and compassion. Working with the body gives us this opportunity to be able to, when uncertainty comes up or vulnerability comes up, that we're able to be able to hold that for ourselves without 
judgment or without criticism and be able to hold that. And that's a beautiful thing to have happen. And those people really show up as having a very compelling presence. I am you use the word vulnerability. That's really a tough one in our society. We would like to sidestep uncertainty and sidestep vulnerability. One of the major, I guess, emotions would be fear, fear that comes up for us to cause us to want to sidestep it because of fear. So what would you say about the importance of making fear an ally? Because I think that you subscribe to that. I I subscribe to it because I grew up in a generation of males that if you said you were afraid or you showed fear, it would be like you had a deadly virus and nobody else would want to be around you. You were supposed to hide that. Men didn't show fear. Men didn't have fear. You acted bravely. And um, I came to a place where I recognized, oh, I, I was fearful, but I couldn't express it. And by over-containing that fear, that other things came out of me that I was not pleased with, that I would be irritated or I would be angry or I would put on an inauthentic presence. And at some point, um, I had very, very powerful teachers that had me go inside of myself and enter into what we call an Aikido, you enter into the place of conflict and see that you see what's there and then see if you can deconstruct it and then integrate it for yourself, for new actions. And then at some point I was reading the Odyssey. This this had been, this was decades ago. And it was when Odysseus was having a conversation with Ares. And Ares says to Odysseus, Take Phoebus and Demos, fear and anxiety, into the battlefield. I was shocked. What? You take fear into the battlefield? What does that mean? And it really propelled me into really a lifelong look at the fear in myself, the fear in my clients, what gets turned into something, a conundrum or dilemma or mischief when we really don't deal with our own fear, we can say, I'm afraid, and own and dignify our fear. Well, I'm thinking you write about your own fear and anger, especially your anger with your father. He was a difficult man, and you had a difficult relationship with him. In fact, he even disowned you at some point when you were... um, quite a young man. And there was a moment when some friends of yours, I don't know, there's some instance where you just got into that anger and you were pounding and pounding and pounding a pillow and, you know, just letting all of this anger out. However, you, you describe that that was not enough. And There's a key there somehow because we think, okay, if we let out the anger, then it'll just dissipate and it'll be gone. So help us understand that there's more to the process. What I saw from that example, and and many like it, 
was that when my anger arose, that it was because fear was present. And the anger was a way to begin to have, at least for myself as this white male in this generation, to show that I didn't have fear, that I could have some kind of power or strength or bravado. And I also realized when I did that is that I created breakdowns in the relationships that I cared about. And I knew I had to take care of it. So it wasn't just that I'll have anger and then I have this catharsis. It, it was kept coming up and repeating over and over again. And I had to go to the source of that is the place where I feel vulnerable. And when I feel vulnerable, that makes me afraid. And I had to come to terms with that and did a lot of internal work with that, with good therapy and good guides that helped me in that. When I read this part of the book and when I was um, really contemplating it, I remembered a moment in my life where um, I was in circle with someone very much like what you described, someone who was very angry and uh, very cut off, and he he could not be vulnerable in his life at all. And he said in the circle, he said, I've never felt love. Mm. And Richard, I knew this was not true for him because I had seen him uh, be very loving and falling in love with this little girl who he just would be delighted when she would come in the room and she would run to him and jump in his lap and he would just be delighted. So what I did for him is that I said, um, Shaw, just he was laying down on the floor and I put my hand on his chest and I had him do what I think that you talk about, this embodied imagination. I said, Shaw, imagine... Aisha coming into the room and jumping in your lap. And he did that. And he said, okay. And I said, what are you feeling? And he said, um, well, there's a little bit of warmth around my heart. And I said, Shaw, that's love. <laughs> that's it. And, you know, it may not, uh, what what that taught me and what I think you are talking about, it may not come to us in full-blown fireworks, but it may come in these subtle bodily inklings, is what I'm going to say, these little little things that we feel within our body. And, and so I think that you really urge us to pay attention to that body, to pay attention in some way. Uh, it, I'd, I'd love for you to, to say more about this. Well, you know, um, I want to begin by saying, for most people, when we say body, they immediately have this thing, this image of the swimsuit edition of Sports Illustrated, or the guy on the cover of Men's Health that has this, you know, 0.06% body fat, and that to really be clear, we're not talking about that particular biological shape. We're talking about, as I said before, our capacity to take action, to be in moods and emotions, to coordinate with other people, to, to, to learn through our bodies. And essentially, the body is three billion years of evolution 
So there's a tremendous wisdom and intelligence in it that actually has us move towards skillful adaptation, towards wisdom, towards connection, towards mutuality and interdependence. And that we are educated out of that. You know, we we have our children sit for eight hours and you know, I'm not talking against rational thinking because we are rational beings too, but we prune the sense of soul, intuition, conscience out of ourselves. And by doing that, there's a whole array of deep wisdom that we no longer have access to. And, you know, I think that this lack of this wisdom is one of the reasons that most Conflict turns to violence now. It's one of the reasons that we can so easily soil our water, include our air and our soil. And one of the reasons that there's this widening gap between those that have and those that don't have is that we've really lost touch with this capacity to feel. And I don't mean have a feeling, although that may happen. I mean feeling this core life energy that moves through us and all living things. I, I think that uh, it was your grandmother that really showed you that that interconnection of all things. And even going back to uh, one of your teachers, uh, the polarity therapy, uh, Dr. Stone, was it? Also embodied this full connection of of how everything is alive and and part of everything else and interconnected. I was so fortunate to study with Dr. Stone. He was the founder of polarity therapy, and he had a tremendous abundance of techniques that he did. He was a trained osteopath. You know, he um, was a chiropractor. He had did acupuncture, but basically his most of his things that he did came down to 10 things that he would do on clients. And what fascinated me wasn't necessarily the technique he did, but he was like a gigantic generator. And he had this big open heart and he could be firm and he had a cutting knife, but he had a big open heart and um, he was just a true healer. A true healer. And yeah, and you describe him so well in the book. I'm here with Richard Strozzi. Heckler, and he is the author of Embodying the Mystery. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, strozzyinstitute.com. That's spelled S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I, strozzyinstitute.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Richard Strozzi Heckler, and he is the author of Embodying the Mysteries, Somatic Wisdom for Emotional, Energetic, and Spiritual Awakening. And Richard, I would like to talk about longing. This is a subject that uh, for a lot of my life I've um, been resistant toward because I felt like, oh, longing is so open-ended. I want everything to come to completion. I don't want to be living in longing. You're talking about longing in such a different way. You describe it as it's embedded in our DNA as a homing device. I just love that. Okay. All right. Help us understand how we can befriend longing. Um, yes. I uh, Let me start with this anecdote here of a young man who had read my books and we know each other personally um, and uh, uh, we have strong connections. And I was talking about this longing that I can remember in myself from the very beginning. And that was fed by a lot of these spiritual texts and mystical texts that I've read. And he said to me, he says, well, does that mean you're dissatisfied with your life? And I realized that, um, I, well, what I told him was, I said, I I feel so grateful for I have a fantastic life in every dimension that I can think of. But really, and when I thought about that, his question, which I thought was um, an intelligent question, but took me off balance for a moment. And I said, you know, I I've ever since I remember, I've been a seeker, a certain calling, something's calling me that there's got to be more than me being a good consumer or more than me having these things or more than me adhering to what I'm adopting from the social context about relationship, about place, profession, ego, and all of that. Um, it, it was a seed planted by my grandmother, for sure, and all of my, my um, teachers. But when I begin to explore that, it was a sensation that was in me. And that chapter that you're talking about is called the sensation of longing. So it's just not an idea or a concept. It's actually something that we can feel. And it's moving us towards, I would say, a more original place. A place that we can reside in, in which we can be fully expressed fully authentic and feel those principles of interconnection and interdependence with really minimal effort. And I think those things too, by coming from that kind of presence, makes us not only better citizens, it makes us better able to take care of these, these conundrums that are developing in the world as we speak right now. I would love to read something from your book because on, on longing, I wrote this out and this will give our listeners a little flavor of the exquisite writing that you do because I just love this um, image of longing. I just felt like it was so brilliant. Um, and these are your words. Longing has a direction similar to the starling's murmurations Longing is an ancient forming and reforming of the heart's journey to fulfilling its potential and purpose. 
Longing is a living process that flows out and collects in a primordial tide, gathering life and extending life, breath filling and structuring us, breath emptying and dissolving us. Wow, <laughs> just Richard, I love that you use the uh, the the phrase, and and you might describe um, to our listeners what you mean by the starlings' murmuration. Uh, what that means uh, and uh, your experience of that. Yes, a murmuration that these starlings do is when they come together, usually at dusk, at least where I live, they come together at dusk, and they can be hundreds of starlings and even thousands, and they collect as one body, and they're they're navigating actually off the bodies starlings right next to them and they're flying through the space and diving and turning and spiraling and it feels like it's totally um spontaneous in what they're doing um and inside of that there's a something inside that body of starlings so each of the starling is a body a soma but then there's this larger body or this larger soma that's finding its way through the skies and it is a it is a point of grace and beauty and poetry that reminds us that there's something always forming in us. What we say in somatics is we look at what now wants to come to form, what has been long withheld that now wants oxygen and life and to be shown. And you speak with most people about that, and ultimately will come down to how can I love more? How can I receive more love? How can I make more genuine contact? How can I receive contact? How can I not be afraid of who I am? Yes, yes, exactly. And going back to the subtitle of your book, um, Somatic Wisdom, Emotional energetic and spiritual awakening. So uh, it's all about uh, tapping into a kind of energy that's that's available to all of us at, at any moment. So any recommendations you have? I mean, I know you say um, to go inside or go, yeah, what does go inside mean? What do you mean go inside? <laughs> I, I would answer this in two ways, Justine. In the first way, in your specifically to your question, it really means bringing your attention to the life of your body. It's not bringing your attention to the life of your mind, your concepts, your symbols, your icons. All that's fine. I'm not arguing against that. But what we've lost contact with is this life core dynamic life energy that moves through us by simply bringing our attention to the life of the body, to our temperature to movement, to shape, to holding, to pulsations, that begins to inform us about this, 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 this energy that happens in the body. The second thing is, my experience has shown me that having a teacher that can help guide you along the way is immeasurable. And I've just been blessed with fantastic teachers, not always easy, but they've really kept me on path. And so the notion of bringing our attention to the life of the body, having a teacher, and then 
that teacher and the body will show us practices to take that will take us to the next level of consciousness. And going back to practice, and you say, hey, practice, practice, practice. Uh, so so I, I know that you want to emphasize that, that it's it's not like we accomplish it and finally we've learned our scales and everything, but but we just continue. Even even very, very famous musicians will continue to practice their art. So uh any any further thoughts on practicing? Well, I'll say, you know, I went to university on a track scholarship and um i ran at an international level i ran in the pre-olympic meet in mexico city and so forth but i say those things because right away it was clear to me that if i practiced and i had a lot of trust in my coach and they told me how to practice and how to, how to move with others and what to do then i got better and when i started to complain about something or this wasn't happening of everything that I did, the martial arts, the athletics, meditation, they all said to me, keep practicing. Keep practicing. That was that was the advice. So my joke is maybe in the last five minutes of my life, I'll go, wow, that was on purpose. I'll, f- I'll find out. <laughs> in the meantime, I'm still taking their advice and I'm staying with my practices. Good, 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 good. And and um I I know that you talk about the som- somatic path is is really informed by an intelligence that as you've spoken about is is really deeper than the rational mind. It's a um it's the ongoing flow of life in in some ways and it's it's deeper. Uh it's as you say, not not just of the mind of our rational brain. It's it's embodied, and when you say embodied, you really mean in the body. In the body, going in into the body, going into the soma, and really becoming a deep listener to the wisdom that it has has to offer, and the how it informs us of these different things, and how. As I said earlier, when it would inform me that, oh, I'm afraid, I would struggle with that. And in that struggle, I realized like, oh, I'm just tiring myself out and not becoming the self I want to become. So if I really listen to it, if I really listen to that fear, I began to see that if I studied fear, that was the gateway to becoming fearless. Wow. Thank you. Thank, Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. It's, you've just been an enormous um, teacher of experience. You come from your experience, and we just so appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Strozzi Heckler, and he is the author of Embodying the Mystery, Somatic Wisdom for Emotional, Energetic, and Spiritual awakening. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, strozzyinstitute.com. And he spells strozzy, S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I, strozzyinstitute.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,769. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.